What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From the Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the great comics artist Art Spiegelman has a new book out. It's called Street Cop, with a story by Robert Coover. The book is from isolari.com. We'll speak with Art later in the hour. But first, there's big news about our favorite topic, infrastructure, and the bipartisan infrastructure bill. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today at home in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, it's good to be with you. If we had better infrastructure, I'd be sitting next to you because I could just drive right out there and pull into your driveway. <laughs> well, a little background on this whole issue. Joe Biden, of course, campaigned on the promise to win Republican support in Congress for at least some of his programs. We all said that was impossible that he was crazy, that bipartisanship was dead in America. But this week's news is that the bipartisan trillion-dollar infrastructure bill was not blocked by the threat of a Republican filibuster. It's being debated on the floor of the Senate right now. And Chuck Schumer says he hopes to have a vote by the end of this week, presumably with at least 10 Republicans in favor. So this bill has $550 billion in new spending over five years for Roads, rail, electric vehicle charging stations, lots for replacing lead water pipes. Uh, and this is on top of $450 billion in previously approved funds. It's the biggest investment in infrastructure in more than a decade. My question for you is, what kind of miserable concessions have the Democrats made to get us to this point? <laughs> Perfect question. A lot, by the way. Um, look, uh, first off, I'm going to question your notion that uh, bipartisanship isn't dead. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's dead. <laughs> um, you know, because uh, the the fact of the matter is this, this bill in many ways is proof that it's dead. Um, and they've got $550 billion, which is a lot of money. You know, it's a substantial amount of money. But I'll note that what Biden event... It, initially came out with as his proposal on infrastructure. Now, admittedly, it was a much broader proposal, had a lot of other elements in it, but it was, I believe, 2.3 trillion. So yeah. um, if we were really to be crass capitalists, John, um, <laughs> we would simply say, well, if I subtract 500 and some billion from 2.3 trillion, that would pretty well sum up the democratic compromise, mm -hmm. right? You know, or whatever the Democrats gave up. And that's a lot. The fact of the matter is that um, the Biden White House was exactly right back in March, early April, when they came up with an infrastructure plan that really spoke about the whole of infrastructure, that recognized that, yeah, roads and bridges are a part of this, but so too is broadband, so too is our digital future, so too is investment in the future of work, in understanding how AI, artificial intelligence, and other things are going to change how we work and how we you know, structure our work lives. And finally, investment in care, because the human infrastructure, right? How we care for human beings and how we support those who provide that care makes the whole rest of our economy work. And so you had a very good, not perfect, 
but very good initial plan. And we have now bartered it down to just the roads. It's roads and bridges and a little bit more. Um, and so I think you can, I think you could be a little bit ill at ease with this. And I take my cue from, um, you know, I, there's, a, there's a few people in the house, I think, who are, are a little more serious about these issues, and particularly Peter DeFazio, the longtime congressman from Oregon. And DeFazio chairs the key committee in the House. And he said flat out, look, you know, they bartered away the future here. This bill has, you know, a lot for roads and bridges. It's got a little for transit and decent money for transit, more than you might have expected in the past. But it doesn't have the kind of build out on mass transit that's going to really get us beyond, you know, the fossil fuel moment that we're in to the next place that we need to be in. And the same with rail, you know, uh, Amtrak is going to get money here, right? But if you're looking at a situation where, you know, in this critical moment, we go from, you know, a, a starved Amtrak system to European style, you know, real railroads, the music's coming in as I speak. Uh, you know, it's just, that's not what we're looking at. And let me say also, we've talked thus far about the spending side. There's also the paying for it side. And the original proposal, as I recall, was to pay for all of this by taxing the rich and corporations and by going after tax cheats. Where do we stand on that in the bipartisan bill? Well, we're still, you know, we're not quite there, are we? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's look, uh, we 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 frittered away a lot of a lot of the the really innovative stuff as regards paying for this thing, and uh, the idea of you know saying we're going to pay for it by taxing the rich uh, has you know the the core concepts on on really serious taxation of the rich has been bartered off, right? So this is not a plan that that has you know a big program for you know kind of. Uh, an equitable and responsible redistribution of this immense wealth that's been piled up with a handful of very, very rich people uh, and, you know, the rest of us, right? You know, getting some of that money over to the, to the rest of us. And, and so uh, I look at this plan as, you know, kind of a classic compromise. It's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's way less than what we had hoped for. If this is what bipartisanship is, then, then I think we should scrap it because, you know, it's, it's not delivering for us in a way that is fundamental or in a way that really gets us to where we need to be. And in fact, I think we're bartering off opportunities to do other things, right? Uh, to say, oh, well, we got a bipartisan compromise. That's good news. Now we'll go on to the next thing. Do you really think we're going to get on to the next thing? I hope so. I, I And I know Bernie Sanders and others are going to fight and try to do so, but I think that, that it gets harder and all these people head off on their, you know, recess breaks and their time off. And, uh, and, and so I worry about it. And, and I just want to make a pitch for what bipartisanship was. Please. Bipartisanship used to be the two parties trying to outdo one another on doing the right thing. Right. And so in 1962, 1963, 1964, uh, when the Kennedy administration was going a little bit slow on civil rights, you had a bunch of Republicans who were literally saying, this is BS. These Democrats are bowing to and compromising to their Southern wing. They're not doing what's needed. And so Jacob Javits and John Lindsay and other Republicans demanded real civil rights, you know, a much bolder approach, uh, even with economic justice components. And the Democrats were like, ooh, we better rise to that occasion. And so you had bipartisanship in 
the mid-1960s on uh, civil rights, voting rights, Medicare, Medicaid, war on poverty, and I'll note opposition to the war in Vietnam. Uh, but it wasn't saying, oh, I'll do a little less of this, right? Or, you know, do come over to my extreme side. It was that there are goals that this country needs to get to, and we're going to kind of compete to see how we get there better. Um, to call what's going on right now bipartisanship is, uh, I think, it's a lie. This is not bipartisanship. This is, you know, deep fundamental compromise of principles uh, with people who are unprincipled. On the other hand, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here for a minute. This was a tough one for Republicans. Their goal in life is to make Biden a failure, to block every single thing he tries to do. Trump told them all, don't vote for this. Uh, And yet 10 of them have joined in working with Democrats and abandoning this bedrock principle of what it means to be a Republican today. Should we congratulate those 10 for their their courage? John, you're going to get me starting to, you know, the next thing you're going to do, you're going to have me <laughs> saying how great Liz Cheney is. <laughs> you know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I respect the fact that some Republicans have uh, decided that they will make a small, minimal investment in addressing the fact that our bridges are literally collapsing. In their own districts, in their own states. (laughs) And they'll have their press releases out immediately on that, including people that voted against the thing. I respect the fact that they've, you know, that they've overcome their extreme partisanship sufficiently to do that. And that Democrats have as well. But I would be very, very careful about two things. First off, assuming everything will hold together. Yeah. Um, And and, you know, there's always there's always the uncertainty there. Uh, But uh, if indeed it does hold together, great. We've got this. This is an incremental thing and it's good to to have it. But um, if the price of that is that then the Republicans will say, yeah, see, we work together with Biden when he's reasonable, but not when he's unreasonable about things like, I don't know, letting people vote. (laughs) Um, So. Uh, I'd be, I'm still going to be a, a little okay. careful about okay. you know, celebrating this. So next comes the the really big bill. The It's now $3.5 trillion, what we regard as the real infrastructure bill with far-reaching programs in things like uh, child care, uh, health care, some climate uh, legislation that touch almost every corner of American life. And as we've been, we've said here a hundred times, if 50 Democrats vote for it in the Senate, it can pass under reconciliation. The vice president can break the tie and the president can sign it into law. And all 50 Republicans are sworn to oppose this one. But will we get 50 Democrats to vote for it? Well, that is a great question. And so, you know, we're moving out of bipartisanship. And now to the, what I've always said is the bigger question is, can you unite your Democratic caucus? To my mind, that's what matters. You know, it, it, the funny thing is, in most countries around the world, uh, if one party is the governing party, they're not worrying a lot about getting members of the other party to come and help them govern. They're like saying, no, we would like to govern really well so we can keep doing this for a long time. And, um, and so the whole focus on bipartisanship is, is, uh, distracts us from the, the kind of core concepts, some core concepts of governing. And um, I think there's a possibility to hold the Democrats together on this, but it will not be easy. Already, Kirsten Sinema, 
uh, has suggested that she's like got questions and she doesn't feel comfortable with the 3.5 trillion. Now we don't know if she's comfortable with 3.4 trillion or or what, but there's you know there's a, some push and pull there, and I don't necessarily say it's going to be easy. But one thing I'm going to emphasize is the the budget proposal that Bernie Sanders has pulled together with some moderates, including Mark Warner. So this is not you know some you know, like a left wing you know wish list. This is one that's got you know some buy in. Schumer's very much on board. Uh, Biden appears to be on board. This has a lot of stuff in it that people really like, and that is in, in fact very very popular. I'm noticing, John, that you know because our, our people listening to this podcast don't know that we are actually doing this via video. I'm noticing that you are wearing glasses. <laughs> I know that you are not old enough to take advantage of all the programs we have for our senior Americans. But when you are older, um, you may need to get new glasses. Under the plan that uh, Bernie Sanders has put together, vision, hearing, um, and, uh, and- Dental. Dental. That's forgetting about your teeth, which are beautiful, so I know you don't need that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, all these things are gonna be covered uh, as part of Medicare and Medi ultimately Medicaid, one would hope as well. And, and so you end up in a situation where that's, a, that's something you can sell to people. I mean, that is not a hard sell to people in West Virginia that they can get their glasses. And it is not a hard sell to people in Arizona that they can get pre-K for you know, three and four-year-old kids. And so the infrastructure plan, the budget plan, I shouldn't say, I'm sorry, this is the budget plan that, that Bernie Sanders has come up with has got a lot of really attractive stuff. And the key on this one, I think, is to turn the volume up on what you get um, and turn it down a little bit on talking about the price tag. Uh, and if you do that, I think this is a sellable plan. It's interesting that where the trouble's gonna come in, I think, is on how it's paid for. And of course, Sanders is, and others are very supportive of, again, taxing the rich, taxing corporations, you know, closing loopholes, getting the IRS to do its job. And um, that's where you're going to really measure your Democrats, because I have bad news for you, John. There are some Democrats who are sort of sympathetic to corporations and rich people. And um, the key is going to be to get them on board. And, and so it won't be people standing up saying, oh, I don't want old people to have you know, hearing tests. And I don't want John Wiener to get his glasses. Uh, but they're going to be saying, I don't like that way of paying for it. They'll find their gripes and grumbles. And uh, this is going to be a big task for Sanders, who's working the phones all the time. It's also a big task for Biden. And Biden needs to work the phones as well. Uh, but I, you know, I do think it's possible. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be a lot more celebratory on the day they pass a $3.5 trillion budget that's got massive increases in social programs than I will on the day they do a $550 billion infrastructure plan. Big tasks ahead. John Nichols, read them at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Great to have you on the show again. Honor to be with you. Hope you get your glasses. <laughs> Art Spiegelman has a new book out. He's done drawings for Street Cop. That's a short novel by Robert Coover. Of course, Spiegelman wrote Mouse, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1992. And then he did In the Shadow of No Towers after 9-11. Before all that, in 1980, he co-founded Raw, 
the avant-garde comics magazine with his wife, Francoise Mouly. Mouse was originally serialized in the pages of Raw. He's also done 36 covers for The New Yorker. Art Spiegelman, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, what was it about Robert Coover's story, Street Cop, that made you want to do drawings for it? Well, it came along at exactly the right time, which is we had just moved up to uh, our bunker in Connecticut Woods uh, a day or so before the uh, lockdown happened, not knowing how long we were going for. So the only thing I really had planned to work on was my sketchbook, just to get my chops back, because I'd been mostly writing rather than drawing in the period running up to all this. But it didn't have any urgency to it because it's just, there's a tree, learn how to draw it. Oh, here's an idea for a comic I may never execute further than in my sketchbook and make pictures for it. And then I think in late March or early April, I got a letter from my Solari, Isolari saying, Coover asked us to get in touch to see if you would illustrate his new work for a little book we're doing. And it's literally a little book, it turns out, which was part of the seduction for me of where all this was. It's such a nice format, and I, I really like books as objects. But beyond that, I was also looking desperately to not do drawings about Trump. I, I didn't want to go there. I'd done some, but very few compared to most of my peers, because I just had a great conviction that whatever you feed a narcissist, it makes him bigger. It, it doesn't diminish him. And so I was looking for elsewhere to go. And uh, then I wrote back to them saying, OK, I'll look at the manuscript. And as long as it has no mice or Jews in it, I'll <laughs> be glad to consider because I really admire Coover. Liked his work for a very long time. And lo and behold, no Jews, no mice. And best of all, it was a dystopia, but it wasn't the one I was living in. Uh, it was a dystopia next door. And so it allowed me to like approach and inhabit it. And I felt, oh, a small book, like really small. I mean, I figured how long could that take? And the answer was because COVID year lockdown and a slowing brain that, uh, without ever having gotten COVID, definitely was filled with brain fog anyway. Uh, it just ended up somehow or other taking me most of my lockdown year vacation, inhabiting or illustrating that book. So you call it a small book. What, what exactly is the size? It's smaller than my iPhone 6. I guess it's close to three by four. In any case, I inhabited it. I just entered in, tried to figure out how to make it interesting for myself and for others. And uh, it was perfect as a way, I thought, of just going into the universe next door that had its own problems, but it wasn't mine, which was true for about a month. But as soon as George Floyd happened, street cops were in the news. <laughs> yes. It, it either was uh, about that or it very belligerently wasn't. And instead, it really was just something proximate to that has to do with our street cops somehow because it is a street cop and it's a street cop in a world of robocops in the near present or present because Coover was very useful to me in terms of giving me directions that were easy to follow. I mean, one direction was, if there's something you don't like in the story, just draw something else. If you don't like it, well, draw whatever you want. So that, that was rather open-ended. And then it was also, well, you know, it's a dystopic uh, story about the future, which means, of course, it takes place now. And hmm. that sounded right to me. And although neither he who finished that novella long short story at the end of 2019 in December was definitely on time. This thing still reverberates strongly with yeah. everything from surveillance culture to the casual 
lying that our government does by definition to the strategies one uses to avoid the present, which Coover and I were both doing in our own way while landing smack dab in the middle of it. Let's start with the cover. The cover features our protagonist, the street cop. He, he looks familiar to anyone who was around in the 50s and 60s and reading comics. Uh, who is he? Well, he's a grown-up sluggo. I did a lot of um, casting calls for what I draw the street <laughs> cop like, and I tried things that looked a little like Dick Tracy and a little bit like just uh, uh, Broderick Crawford. And, and at some point, sluggo came to mind because he seemed to both raffish, tough guy, and quite benign at the same time as him being the homeless or living on his own uh, stub-sized boyfriend of Nancy in Nancy and Sluggo. And it's a strip I've long loved. It goes back into the 30s, and it has the advantage of being iconic and simple. And what I liked was sending it to Bob and saying, my God, that is the street cop. You're a genius. Um, <laughs> And for me, it was the street cop, partially because I've done this before, and here I was doing it again, which is retreating from the present into the past that gives me comfort. Most of the illustrations went there. They come from what Coover in his book calls the old part of town, which is the only place this unhappy street cop who only became a street cop to avoid getting a jail sentence for dealing drugs. They wanted a street cop rather than another prisoner. So he took, as always for him, the line of least resistance. So he was a street cop. But um, he didn't have a, a commitment to the vocation. And his uh, pleasures consisted of finding the old part of town in his dystopic world, uh, where I think the way Coover phrased it at some point was, uh, it was no better than ours, but it was uh, the one he could feel comfortable with that perhaps was more forgiving of his failings. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't phrased exactly that way, but that was the essence. And I felt the same way. So I just went into the old part of town to survive my own dystopia. And there it was ready to ready for action. Uh, and that was fun to cast. Find, okay, there's, there's characters like... Uh, the person who's the proprietor of a zombie uh, pet shop. And I found that the old host of uh, Tales from the Crypt was perfect <laughs> for, for that role, for example. I, I, I want to stick with the street cop on the cover just for another minute. There's a gun in his hand. Where did you get that gun? Oh, basically from the Buck Rogers era future. Because if you're going to live in the old part of town, the Buck Rogers era is the future, see? So... <laughs> I, I had to both be in the present, past, and future, but my future couldn't get too much past the 1960s. Uh, and maybe that was realistic, because I still don't know what our future actually is. It seems like we're hovering in a lull between several storms. Just to keep the story part coherent to people who are trying to follow any of this, um, he's the only person who can find the old part of town at will just by uh, predisposition. It's not on the uh, app map that uh, is issued on the phone. And nobody can find it because buildings in this world are all, they can get up and walk around and move to other neighborhoods. My favorite drawing, aside from the cover, is Nudie Night at the Bar. It's just a feast of characters from comics past, all of them naked. Uh, let's start with the overweight, wrinkled, older woman with a familiar hairdo in the foreground. Who is she? His old girlfriend, Nancy. And uh, as... One of my cartoonists once said, my God, having seen Nancy now, I'll never be able to answer. <laughs> and is that Mr. Natural in the corner? No, it's not. It's the person that Mr. Natural was based on. 
Back in my old part of the town, which is the 1930s, there's a comic strip called The Squirrel Cage, uh, which had a little hitchhiker who was half pint size and would uh, always be trying to get through the surrealistic landscape with his thumb out and saying only and always nav schmaz kapop, cross between somehow Crazy Cat and the old Popeye comic strip. It had <laughs> surrealism and uh, marijuana smell that inhabited Crazy Cat and squirrel cage anyway it's a wonderful strip so it was in my mind and he was perfect to make into a big bouncer and there is a, a mouse in in the uh in the frame it, it's not your mouse it's not mickey mouse it's the other great mouse in the history of comics ignatz from crazy cat of course we love and revere crazy in ignatz they they represent the comics at their most highbrow nancy and Slu sluggo are definitely lowbrow is that fair I think it is fair, although I'm not sure that uh, Harriman would accept the highbrow definition that gladly. I don't think he knew which brow he was. <laughs> um, and none of us knew that he was actually black back in the day. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's that. But for me, it was like a real small afterthought because I tried to make, since I was working relatively small, even for this tiny book, uh, I had a spare inch and wanted to fill it with something. And there was Ignatz, just the right size to sit on a bar stool. And... As another cartoonist pal of mine pointed out, my favorite was seeing Ignatz's genitals. <laughs> uh, can I ask you about your controversial New Yorker covers? Sure. Your first New Yorker cover, it was unforgettable, a Hasidic Jew kissing a Caribbean American woman. At the time, the two ethnic groups were facing off in a violent conflict in Crown Heights, neighborhood of Brooklyn. I understand the Hasids didn't like your drawing because their men are not allowed to touch women who aren't their wives, much less kiss them. And some people of color didn't like it either. They took it as a suggestion that they should just kiss and make up with, with the Hasids and everything would be all right. What did you think this meant? I thought everybody should kiss and make up. It was Valentine's Day as a cover, in fact. So it was uh, talk about moving into other alternate dimensions next door to ours. Why not? But... I, I had to understand why they were offended. I thought they just didn't want the Hasids to have a monopoly on offense. But uh, <laughs> in part, I think it had to do with the rumor that Hasids were picking up black hookers underneath the Williamsburg Bridge. But I didn't even know that at the time. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, but I wasn't clued into the uh, Williamsburg after dark life. So I didn't know that. And um, I thought it was a rather benign cover. I, I had no idea it would be that controversial, and it sort of launched controversy into the pages of Tina Brown's New Yorker magazine. Yeah, the New Yorker covers were very staid and respectable and elegant up uh, up to that point. Of course, your the most controversial of all was your 1999 New Yorker cover showing a cop at a shooting gallery and no caption. If you look inside, it said the title was 41 Shots, 10 Cents. The context of this was that a New York cop shot an unarmed and innocent black immigrant 41 times named Amadou Diallo, a name well known to people of a certain age. I understand the mayor denounced your cover, the governor denounced it, 250 cops picketed the New Yorker, and the New York Post addressed you directly in an editorial, quote, if you are burglarized or your family is menaced by thugs, you should be consistent. Call Al Sharpton instead of 9-11. 
See where that gets you, Spiegelman, you creep. Close quote, the New York Post, 1999. I wouldn't say they misunderstood this cover. No, no, but they misunderstood my affection for Al Sharpman. <laughs> I don't think the New Yorker has ever been picketed before or after because of a cover. I was very proud of the um, Street Cop cover because at the time that that event or those events were happening, it had sort of been vaguely in the news, but it was mainly considered of interest to the minority involved, to the black folks involved. And then this cover comes out, and around that time, all of a sudden, it became kind of radical chic to go down and protest at City Hall. So Susan Sarandon was there and many other people, and it became a citywide thing. And I thought that the cover actually was a catalyst for a lot of that. And in fact, I was especially proud of little bootleg badges that were being sold on the street of that cover that were being proudly worn as a protest sign for it. And the really, if I can pat myself on the back, the smart thing about that cover, which was done very quickly because uh, of the rapidity of those events happening, was so this very friendly looking street cop who actually could have been my street cop if he hadn't been sluggo, apple-cheeked, looking like he came from the one-page fillers in uh, Superman comics or something, was aiming at uh, a shooting gallery that said 41 shots, 10 cents, because that's how many times Amdo Diallo's uh, shot at, was little silhouettes of people wandering by. They're just silhouettes with little targets on them. So that was this part where I felt really, oh, I got it, because basically they're all black, because the silhouette is black. Yeah. But they're not black because they're other. They're black because silhouettes are black. So uh, at that point, it was very, very quietly but uh, firmly stated that our citizens are under attack by our cops, not black citizens who deserve it because they might burglarize you. And, and back on the other cover, all I was looking for was not controversy. I was just looking for an interesting image for Valentine's Day. And I'd started by just doodling Eustace Tilly, the monocled uh, mascot of the New Yorker since its inception. Uh, and I was going, I wonder what he'd look like if he was Hasidic. Uh, <laughs> and, and I just started drawing that, and then the rest of the cover fell into place around that. And then there was an, another uh, controversy that you got into, a cartoon that was in The Nation. Yes, basically around the time in 2014 that uh, the Palestinians were being um, in, were in collision with the occupiers of West Bank. And I often try to like walk around these things because um, basically I'm a Zionist, not a Zionist, but and not anti-Zionist, but like agnostic, uh, in that on the one hand, I have to understand how come Israel got invented. Uh, it had a lot to do with my own family's background. Although I said it very badly for an issue of Tablet once that got me in trouble as well, where I said something like, the Holocaust is the broken condom that gave birth to Israel. Oh, man. I can, yes. Vivid. Uh, so anyway, at that moment, I didn't want to do this. I just felt grateful that my parents had walked right instead of left and ended up in New York rather than Tel Aviv after they got out of the camps uh, and eventually resettled in America. But it seems so tragic as a situation, and it seems confusing to me. You know, like uh, I'm definitely in favor of a one-state solution should it happen, a two-state solution should, if it should happen. But I'm not happy with uh, a one state that's an occupier of another state's solution. It's just 
egregious. But anyway, here I was just being really upset in 2014. So I did an image that if you, you won't have pictures, but I can, I'll describe it as best I can. Uh, it was called A Matter of Perspective. And it was a collage using an old picture of David and Goliath from some Bible book from the 30s or something with Goliath coming over the horizon at small David with a sling. And I found that if you cut out Goliath and put him next to David rather than perspective-wise far below, they're the same size. Hmm. And it's an old optical illusion, basically, because it has to do with perspective lines and scale that gets smaller. So it just said a matter of perspective. And I thought that was uh, more like a snapshot of reality. In fact, I think Goliath was a little smaller when you moved him up next to David. And I felt it was a useful snapshot and an image that helps you understand the uh, events through a different perspective. And nobody wanted it except my friends at The Nation. And <laughs> that happened several times to me over the years that <laughs> ready for another image nobody wants. Um, <laughs> by God, they were. And the result was, I, I, I also had my wife put it up on my author's page uh, on Facebook, since I don't know how to use it. And usually it's handled elsewhere. So it was put up. And then I got all these likes and I got really excited. And I looked and like means we will kill you on sight, motherfucker, evidently. Oh, dear. So that that was an interesting controversy. And then one more, as long as we're on the subject of the nation and controversies, um, I've been very engaged by uh, things that happened around Charlie Hebdo because yes. uh, they were brave enough to uh, reprint the cartoons uh, that led to a lot of years of wrath and bloodshed of the Mohammed cartoon contest in Denmark that I'd done a deep dive into to figure out what the hell that was all about. And as a result, they were eventually uh, shot at and killed for their troubles, uh, the cartoonists who were there. And they're the only people who reprinted it who did it for a good reason. They did it because that's their job. They're called the, the Journal Bête et Méchante, I think, is their subtitle. Nasty and brutish, basically. Drawings of the prophet, not a problem because they're as anti-clerical as can be for equal opportunity anti-clericalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, for their pains, they got uh, banned by uh, a, an insurgent group of pen writers thinking that they don't deserve an award, even though it's an award for First Amendment bravery. And if they didn't deserve it, who did? They'd already been firebombed, and there they were again, uh, insisting on their right to draw these things. And um, and their roots and mine are not that far apart, even though our targets aren't always the same and our approach to drawing isn't the same. So I stepped up at that point and I did a page called Notes of a First Amendment Fundamentalist, a comic strip about what it means to have that particular conviction as somebody who has a very young person felt that the Nazis had a right to march on Skokie, if anybody remembers back that far. And it started an ACLU membership that has been retained till this day, even though I loathed what they were doing. As it said somewhere in that page, if you don't protect the perimeter, there's no such thing as a center. Anyway, it appeared without incident in the nation. And sorry, this is way longer than you're going to want to use, but it's the river that comes with these. That's <laughs> okay. But what happened then was a magazine called The New Statesman had a special issue coming out called Saying the Unsayable. And I was asked by the guest editors, uh, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer, to do a cover. I said, ah, I guess so. But, you know, England would not reprint that First Amendment fundamentalist strip anywhere. And I gave it to all of my friends, The Guardian, 
the London Review of Books and a few other places. Nobody wanted to touch this. So if you can have it as a strip inside the saying the unsayable issue, I'll be glad to do a cover. They promised, but they reneged at the last minute and said, well, we can't run it because we have to have unanimity among everybody on our staff in case they got in trouble for it. There was a picture, not of Mohammed, but a stick figure wearing a turban with an arrow saying Mohammed mm. being held up without turban and arrow, with turban and arrow. What the hell? The result was they wouldn't run it, but they liked my cover and they'd already had it up the day before. And I said they had to remove it. Yeah. So how about... If how about if we just put up the um, link to the Nation magazine? Well, that's pretty cowardly. Nah. So I pulled the cover, and then they accused me of welching on the deal, even though it was them that welched on the deal. Anyway, the Nation has really been a good friend every time I get myself into a too tight a corner to be able to move elsewhere. Well, thank you for those. Uh, and thank you for your drawings for Street Cop, story by Robert Coover. It's published by Isolari. It's not for sale on Amazon. Congratulations to you guys on that. You can order it directly from isolari.com. Isolari ends with two eyes. Oh, and it's at The Strand and at uh, McNally Jackson and at uh, Desert Island. All of your favorite bookstores have it. Some of your favorite bookstores have it. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Art. Oh, thanks so much. Very painless. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.